wanna I wanna talk about this because you've got quite a few compositions out there, which will give you a plug. Kennethsnook.com, correct? Or people or, or Kensnook.com or, or Kensnook.com. Okay. Where where people can go and 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 uh, order you uh, your music from you, and I know a lot of great bands have performed those, and you've won a uh, pretty big composition award for Scaramouche back in the day, right? Can you tell me about that? Uh, that Scaramouche was a, a compositional project that I did. I did not have a composition class uh, until I was working on my master's. Okay, and I had a space available. And uh, I took composition class, which ended up being a private lesson in composition. And I wrote a number of things during that, during that year, one of them being that I wanted to do a major work. I wanted to try it. I had never done that. And the composition teacher, theory prof there, suggested that I pick something much smaller because of the, you know, the scale being, being so difficult to manage. But no, I wanted to try a large scale work. So I started on it and I would come each week and show them what I had been doing. Most of it was written over the course of a couple of months in the winter of uh, 7071. Much of it in the middle of my living room floor <laughs> and in married student housing at the, at the university. Okay. And where did you get the inspiration for the title of the piece? The title of the piece is the name of a pet turtle that a friend of mine had. <laughs> After that, you know, the publishers wanted to know more about it and they came up with artwork that came from the Italian clown of the name, Lascarimouche, but it was because a friend had a turtle. So can we lead, because you've got quite a few compositions out there, and I know some of the uh, titles to those are, are, are personal, and I, and I believe some of the titles go back to some of your family members. So um, if we can kind of go back to what you feel are, are, are some of your mentors' influences, you know, from the beginning. Did you, did you come from a pretty musical household? The only person in our household who had any music background whatsoever was my mother who who had piano background my father was a great whistler <laughs> <laughs> and and he would sing his sense of pitch was really pretty good but he could never really recall all of the words to any song and so he would just kind of make up words as he went along with that but uh, my mother did have have piano and she actually had a little bit of violin early on my grandfather being from Europe uh, three of my four grandparents were immigrants he had a respect for classical music and so his children had the opportunity to have some musical background now she was by no means a violinist but she had some experience with that early on but I was the first one in our extended family to be involved in formal music education the people really who were very important to me as, as part of setting direction uh, the first one was my high school band director uh, Seraphim Mike and Seraphim is still with us he lives in Florida I'm still in touch with him we exchange letters we exchange emails uh, he sends me concert programs he still plays he's in his mid-90s now he still plays in in two community concert bands wow, wow. And, and does some conducting for them now, he complains that his chops aren't as strong as they used to be when he was 30 <laughs> But we exchange programs. I send them recordings of things that we've done, a group that Pamela and I play in, and he sends me recordings and programs of what he's been doing. Well, so I, I consider myself very fortunate to to be one of your students. You're not to have been one of your students, but to be one of your students. You'll always be my high school band director, and I think you know you still are, are my biggest mentor. 
and constantly, you know, I'm I'm emailing you or texting you or calling you and having you come out to work with, with the group. So, you know, I, I am so fortunate to have you in my life. And something that I've told a lot of my friends, I walked into the Lake Park program at 14 years old. And it just so happens, you know, by, by coincidence that that was the year the band went to win the state contest, the national championship, played at the Super State Festival, and capped off the year with a, I think, a 12 or 14 day tour of Russia with performance at the Kremlin. And I just assumed, well, this is what high school band is all about. I thought, you're, I thought you were just taking credit for all of that. <laughs> right. And it just so happened that was the year I started high school. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> I think not. No, but I... There's I, no I, such thing as coincidence. So. <laughs> right. But, I, you know, that was, to me, just what, what high school band was. And obviously, it takes a tremendous amount of work to build up a culture of excellence like that. I'd like you to take us back to your first few years of, of teaching or your first few years at Lake Park and talk to us about what that was like for you as a young director trying to establish that rapport and that culture with your students, with their families, with your administrators, um, and the community. Well, and, and I know this story, but can you tell us how you got the job at Lake Park? Because I think it's just a different way of applying for jobs today and going through the process <laughs> than when you went through it. I think people listening would be kind of fascinated in, in, in this. I was working with the drum corps at the time and I was looking to change. I was in a fill-in job in the spring semester and it was quite a distance from where we were living. One of the members of the drum corps uh, was um, away. This was on the uh, Memorial Day weekend and he was away on the morning of uh, Memorial Day doing a parade with his high school band. And when he came in back to rehearsal, he said, my high school band director just told us that he's leaving. And I asked him a couple of questions about where it was and, and all. Then on Tuesday morning, that being Memorial Day, on Tuesday morning at eight o'clock, I was at the district office applying for the job. And the assistant superintendent for personnel looked at me quizzically, how do you know about this? <laughs> nobody, nobody here knows about this being available. And I explained, and I was the first one to apply, and they had several applicants, and I was fortunate to to get the job. But the first year or so, I didn't feel all so fortunate, but <laughs> but in the long term, uh, in retrospect, it it you know it was a very uh, fortuitous event. So you didn't have to do the educator personality profile online <laughs> that we had to do. <laughs> Submit three three letters of recommendations from people well, who haven't seen it forever. Well, you did need the, the letters of recommendation and proof of prior Employment. achievement. Uh, what have you done? They were looking to have someone who was not a beginning teacher, which was very fortunate because at that particular point, I had been a graduate assistant for uh, two years at a university. I had taught at the university for four years after that, and I taught public school in Michigan for five years and then a half year in Illinois. So... I was very fortunate that I was able to start with 10 years of credit, which helped a great deal. Mm. Absolutely. So talk to us about those first few years. What was, the, what was the state of the program? How did you build the program that eventually became, I'll, I'll use the word powerhouse, but what was it like when you started? It was a very, very difficult first year. We didn't know why, and I say we because my wife Pamela and I you know, have been involved and were involved with the program together over a long period of time. Pamela doing the color guard and obviously then having to also deal with me when I would come home and just be, oh, I don't think this is a good idea. Oh, this is not, this is not good. But that first year, I really didn't know for sure that I had the job until the Friday before band camp started. And I was in Montreal with the drum corps. 
Uh, we did not make finals, so we flew home on Saturday, got into the school on Sunday. Monday morning, met the kids. At lunch of the first day of band camp, I went over to the district office and signed the contract. Wow. <laughs> it was a rather difficult way to start. I did not know anything about the kids. I did not know the instrumentation. I had to come up with a program very, very quickly. Music, I had done some prep on you know, on programming with a just-in-case, you know, if this ended up landing and becoming a reality. But then writing the drill program was something that I had to start and work on every every evening I was writing drill. But then because it was a new a new face in town, things were different in the program. And I had students quit every single rehearsal from August to mid-October. It wasn't until mid-October before we, we got to a rehearsal where we had everybody that we had the rehearsal Woo-hoo! before. <laughs> <laughs> and this also included from a Saturday morning rehearsal to Saturday afternoon football game, where we'd have kids just not be there anymore. So constantly redoing drill, constantly re- redoing instrumental balance and parts and, and all. It was a challenging, a very challenging first year. It was also the first year that the marching band at Lake Park was an extracurricular program. So we had concert band in school every day for each of the bands, but the marching band was then totally outside of the school day. And that was a different thing for the school community as well. And for the kids, that was different than what they had experienced before. For the, uh, for the entire community, it was different. The administration had made the decision, the, the board had made the, the decision that they wanted to take the extra time away from the uh, curricular grade, but all of that time that takes in the fall. So that was part of the challenge as well. With that, when I got to the end of the season, as I did every single year, I would sit down and evaluate what worked and what didn't work in the course of the season. I learned a lot from that. It's not just an exercise, but it's a real soul searching. What did I do that didn't work? Why didn't it work? What can I do differently? How can I change this? That first year, I got to the realization that, well, even if I don't have the best players involved in marching band, if I make this something they want to be a part of and they commit to doing it, we can make this a good experience for them. And that was the philosophy that really drove everything we did for the next 22 years. It's to make it so that the student's time and effort is valued. When you come to rehearsal, we are going to start on time. We're going to be organized. We're going to have everything in place. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And every moment that you're there is going to be utilized. That we value you and that, yes, it's important that you be here. And it's important that you be here every single time. About how long did you feel it took before the students were on board and trusted you and believed what you just told us? I mean, was it was it instantaneous? Did it take a year, two, three? When did you feel like that culture really kind of clicked for, for the group? Actually, there was a single event that was a real turning point in the program. And it was the second year I took the band up to a contest in Michigan. And I had come from Michigan, so it was back to an area where I knew lots of directors. And we were in a contest in Flint, Michigan. And we had one of the smallest bands there. And we performed. And on the way out of the stadium, all of the other bands stood and applauded. And that was the point where everything changed. It was like, yes, we can do this. And that was the second year. And the band also then was a finalist at the state contest and was a finalist then for the next 21 years, save the one that got frozen out. But. <laughs> <laughs> 
Lake Park for for years, not every year, but many years, was known for you know, taking taking the audience someplace different in the world. Lots of classical music that was arranged by you, and and really just having a a, a concert band sound on the field where all of the instruments could be heard. You know, woodwinds in in particular. What was your inspiration? What was your motivation for for taking that approach? Was that was that being done a whole lot? At the time that you started doing that, was that something you had seen and heard somewhere and really liked? Was it something new? What was your motivation? No, I really wanted it to be a band sound, not to be a drum corps brass sound. The drums and the woodwinds are filling drill on the back, but a symphonic band sound. At that time, back in the late 70s, early 80s, the best, most musical marching band in the country was Hersher, Illinois, little teeny tiny farm town that had wonderful teachers, and they created a band program where they were absolutely wonderful musicians on the field, very musical. And it was a complete instrumentation, bass clarinets, berry saxophones. There was a woodwind choir, there was a brass choir, and you could hear woodwinds in the 2D band sound. And I really wanted to do that. So that's what I had in my ear that I, that I aimed for. As to the uh, literature, I wanted it to be good music. I like tunes. I'm not particularly fond of ensemble rhythmic exercises that have a title. <laughs> I, I prefer ones that have melodies and actually take you someplace that melodically and harmonically have a destination and have an emotional contact. It's not just visceral, but there's an intellectual, emotional contact. How did your students respond to that, playing Tchaikovsky, playing Berlioz on, on a marching band, well, on a football field? No, I really did not have much of an issue with that. I, no, I don't recall really any incidents of that at all. There were some parents who either wanted to hear a march because that's what they remembered from high school was the band playing marches or where they wanted to hear pop tunes. And I re referred them to the radio for pop tunes. Uh, they would get much better versions of the pop tunes. <laughs> In terms of the rationale for the literature, it's teaching music. One of the most gratifying moments I ever had as a teacher and as a band director was passing by the percussion room. Uh, and this was a year when we were doing a Dvorak, the Slavonic dances. And I'm passing by the percussion room and there are two percussionists in there and they're discussing the relative merits of two different recordings of the Dvorak Slavonic dances. I paused for a few minutes and listened and I was just elated. My grin lasted for days because they were really engaged in talking about the music, uh, discussing uh, the music, and, and had really developed perceptions and abilities to make a discerning point, uh, being able to really know what they were listening to. We call that today, it's, it's funny because they call it comprehensive musicianship that you know we're trying to get in the classroom. And I always find it fascinating when that didn't happen, obviously, by accident. It was, it was your teachings and your, your wisdom and encouragement through the kids where, where, that, where that happened. Was that something, though, consciously at other times, of, of course, you know, you didn't want just kids that could play their instruments out there. What were the other big goals you were having for, for these kids? Well, actually, playing of the instruments and the spinning of the color guard equipment is really not the reason we're there. Yeah. That we're there to teach kids to be successful. Our tool is band, specifically in the fall marching band, because it has the excitement of, of the performance with lots of people and, you know, and the lights and, you know, and all is, you know, is a real carrot. It, it draws kids in. It's exciting. I had the experience of having many kids who were otherwise not very good players get excited about playing and become really good players. 
kids who were of a very modest ability decided they wanted to be good and become really, really highly competent musicians. It's not by by accident, but we have this you know this device to really pull kids in, where you work with your friends, you spend time with your friends, you travel with your friends, your friends rely on you, and you rely on your friends. And these are some of the some of the really important lessons that we can teach kids. It's our tool for teaching kids to be successful. The kids go on to be doctors, lawyers, teachers, great moms and dads. It's because they have the ability to commit to being successful. One of my questions for you was going to be, and I think you kind of already have answered this, is what are some of the advantages that maybe marching band had in building your concert program and talking about getting students just excited about playing competently, I think is probably one of the biggest ones. But can you talk to us a little bit about how your concert bands helped your marching band program to develop and, and vice versa, how those things kind of worked with each other. Actually, I used the marching band as a tool to improve the concert bands. The core of the program is the concert band. That is the band program. That's the reason for being here. The marching band is, in my mind, something that is an additional and exciting part of a music program, but it's not the main part. Now, with that being said, because of the focus of the activity, if you construct the musical program appropriately, it can be a wonderful pedagogical tool for teaching technique, teaching uh, musicianship, a teaching ensemble. These are skills that, you know, that are difficult to do in the in-school classroom the way that they can be done with, with the marching band in marching band rehearsal, where you have a relatively limited amount of music, but you spend a lot of time with that. Almost, almost every year, I had some compound meter in the program, because kids typically came in being very weak at compound meter have compound meter in so they would spend a good amount of time with compound meter and learning the lilt of one three one three one three one rather than one three one three one three one which ends up being you know kind of all inside out and lopey you feel like it's going to fall over playing in a variety of keys we would often at times have things that would be in g uh sometimes in d uh, we had a major arrival point that was an e one year things to get kids playing in different keys. Lots of woodwind runs, scalar passages in a wide variety of keys so that they developed technique, they developed facility in playing these. And kids who would never otherwise have the opportunity to do that at that point in their experience, they're being put in as a freshman into, you know, say, the clarinet section and having that same responsibility that everyone is expected to play this run. Everyone's expected to learn these scales. And it's a part of part of the learning process, part of their building skills and fluency on their instrument. That's, that's always my favorite part of a, just watching Grand Nationals. So there's a 14-year-old out there. They've been out of diapers 12 years, <laughs> you know, and they're, and they're doing some amazing, you know, things out there. So that's, that's always what kind of fascinated me with that. And I know there are some programs I've seen, though, they don't let freshmen in. It's auditioned and everything but your, your program was was extracurricular did you come into that that way or did you want it to be extracurricular and, and ask for that that was the first year that it was made extracurricular okay. by the administration so you didn't have anything to i did not have that. any choice in the matter actually my first response was well then marching band's never going to be very good after i had a chance to think about it and really work through it and plan i found it as a great strength because if you force kids to be there who don't want to be there, even if they have a great talent, they're not going to be a very good member of that group. And you can take a modest talent and teach them to be much better. And that's, that's exciting as a teacher. It's taking someone who has a great deal of desire and feeding them what they need to know to become good, become successful.
one interesting thing I think maybe not um, entirely unique but interesting is your wife was your color guard director for many years I know Chris Barnum another student of, of yours now at Prospect his wife same thing so I'm guessing like that happens here and there you had um, middle school feeder directors on your staff alumni of the program um, can you talk to me a little bit about what that was like both at rehearsal and after rehearsal I mean were there were there rules that you and Mrs. Snook set up we're not talking about this when we get home or you know things like that how did you balance the professional things you were doing with the personal relationships of having so many people close to you working with the group well first of all with my wife we met through the activity I was teaching in Michigan and I needed a color guard instructor and I judged a drum corps contest where the a color guard for this a drum court was very musical. It was unlike the other color guards. And the next day there was another contest. This was over the 4th of July weekend. I, I asked other people who were judging the show, this was before the, uh, the show started, if they knew who did the color guard for that corps. And they said, well, yes, she's right over here. She's doing a field trial today. And I walked over, introduced myself, asked her if she would come and see the band in a performance. And this was when we were doing a summer a marching band circuit. And we brought her in to see the band, and she agreed to work with the color guard. She worked with the color guard for a couple of years before we started going out and then were married. But we had basic rule that we had to make an appointment at home if we were going to talk about band. Otherwise, <laughs> we did not talk about band at home. So we can make an appointment, uh, say tomorrow at 5.30, and we'd go to the living room and talk about band, and then that would be over. Uh, so as to be able to separate a private life and, and uh, professional life. With the marching band, I had the final say. I also worked with the winter guard, where she was the lead on that, and she had the final say. So you have your, you have your opinions, but you have to accept that whomever is in charge has the final word on how it's going to eventually be. I mean, use your idea, may not. As to the middle school directors, there were a couple you know, through time, but that was pulling people in to, you know, to do things with the kids. Uh, the other staff people, alumni, there were some that we were able to keep involved, uh, particularly those who were in music ed who wanted to continue to apprentice along with the program and giving them guidance about how to do and what to do, observing and giving them feedback on what they're doing and giving them more and more responsibility so that they would grow as an individual and grow as a, as a teacher. Never just, sure, go ahead and take this without any supervision. That's not something that I would typically, typically do. Uh, we did have uh, some people whom I brought in who became very close friends. They didn't necessarily start off as, as a very close friends, just as a business relationship, but we spent a lot of time together and had a great deal of mutual respect. And we still see people now that we worked or where we worked together 30 years ago. Do you find when you're, when you're performing at that level um, and you have a lot of really talented people working with the kids who all have opinions, um, what are some of the difficulties about directing and also collaborating with a group of just that really highly talented you know, people with opinions about how we should do things and the way we should do things? Really just managing managing a team of, of your peers and your colleagues. What are some of the, the difficulties with that? Well, first of all, it's important that, that you understand that it is a team, that when you're the director, that you value the input of everyone, be they someone who has been with you for 15 years or someone who's been with you for five days. Listen to the opinion, value the, the input, but at the same time, making it clear that it is you as the director who has the say as to what it's going to be. That you may take some of the input, you may take none of the input. It's being able to have the bottom line. It's important that everyone who goes to work with 
a group understands that, that it is the director who has the decision. Something that happens a great deal nowadays is that a director will give away so much of the decision-making to someone else. And it results in a loss of identity in part of the program where these people will be working with the program for a year or two or three, but the director's probably going to be there for a long time. And the focus of the program gets lost. It becomes very nebulous because other people are, are making it kind of their stamp for a year or two. It's really important that the director be the director, makes the final decisions, and, and be willing to make the decisions, whether or not they're popular making the decision that is in the best interest of the group, and for a long period of time, not just for the expediency of the moment. Well, and when you were at Lake Park, you did, correct me if I'm wrong here, I know you did all the music arrangements, correct? Yes. And, and you did all the drill Yes, I as, wrote as well. Yes, and I wrote the front ensemble. And for the majority of the uh, 23 years, I also wrote the battery book. And it, there's not a lot of that going on, it seems. Well, I think anymore. you you hear you the know. at least I do. I hear the term one stop shop used as something that is pretty uncommon nowadays, where the director is is taking full responsibility yeah. for the creative aspect of of things. I think that's pretty pretty rare so so that leads me into this is that you know you're you're considered this this legend and, and you know <laughs> you, i mean you are it, i was talking to mark ponzo dr ponzo from niu um he's our trumpet instructor at, at naperville north and, and he considers you just hands down the best band director out there but in in your opinion how has this activity changed uh marching band specifically for the better and and for the worse in your opinion marching band has changed a great deal in largest part because of giving over the control to visual people. That became very apparent in the late 90s and continues, uh, oftentimes where the visual people will call virtually all the shots as to production, the design of the production, the styling of the production, the even to the choice of the music and the editing of the music. This is part of you know, the identity loss where it becomes their identity or where they're going as opposed to the group's identity or the uh, school community's identity. It's, to me, it is something that was very difficult to, you know, to understand. Where we went from thinking about music as being the focus to the visual presentation becoming the focus and the music being a vehicle to serve the visual presentation. Mm. That is the major turn point. Why do you think that happened? Do you think, do you think band directors today weren't didn't prep themselves enough for for that didn't get the the proper instruction didn't immerse themselves in the activity enough maybe uh, you know do they have too much to do do they have you know they'd rather have somebody else do it i mean it's you know i guess there's a reason for every change right well and it's probably probably for different people all of those things okay uh, that that having someone else make those decisions then takes things off of my plate sure but it also changes that relationship with the the actual product of what you know, what it is you're trying to do it also changes the philosophical direction of the uh, program in a conversation just a couple of days ago uh friday in midwest a conversation with darren davis band director at broken arrow the thing he was most proud of was that his kids really play well which is really the whole point of, mm -hmm. of this thing we are we are employed as band directors, not as uh, production coordinators. 
And you know, that was always my goal, too, was that we play really well. I really didn't care about other things. I wanted the kids to play really well. Mm-hmm. Well, and do you think part of it, too, Don just listed a, a, a bunch of reasons, you know, why maybe things have gone the way they have. Just in terms of evolution, looking back on, on just the time that I was a student, the music certainly was the focus. But, but do you think maybe some, some directors looked at what Lake Park, Marian Catholic, lots of the Lassiter, lots of those programs that were really strong through the 80s and 90s were doing and said, well, they just did that so well. I don't want to go out there and just do the same exact thing. Like they've done the classical repertoire really well. What can we do that is different so that they're not comparing us to Lake Park, Marian and Lassiter? We want to find our own identity. Do you think that has something to do with it, trying to make a name for, for themselves? Yes, that's what, that's part of uh, creating your own identity. Even within what we would do, uh, I would look to what the major competitors had done the previous year and really look to kind of counter-program to that. You know, that if they did this kind, if, if they did a soft, delicate opener, do we want to start with something that is very aggressive? You know, or conversely, if most are starting off with a very exciting, aggressive opener, can we start with something that would be very kind of emotionally engaging? You know, to be different than the others. But yes, you know, that's definitely one of the possibilities, or among the possibilities of, you know, of the direction. The other is uh, particularly color guard people, and through the rise of the WGI activity, have a much greater say in the, in the productions at this point. Well, and this is just a, a takeaway for me as I'm listening to you say this, so correct me if, if I'm not taking away what, what you want me to. But <laughs> um, the, one of the big points of that, I think, is don't be afraid to not just follow the trends of what you're seeing and hearing. Don't feel like you have to do what you're seeing and hearing from all of the groups last year. Oh, follow follow exactly. your own voice and, and be creative. And most definitely follow your own voice. And it may not have immediate positive response. Sometimes it takes time for the activity to catch up to that. We had the situation of Michael Cesario pointed this out on a couple of occasions you know, that we did what was being done just five years earlier where we would do something and it wasn't not terribly well received but then in a couple of years that was a very common thing yeah. to have for groups to do. I mean let's talk about the voice then. I, I, I want to kind of get into some more you know maybe concert band things. Oh definitely. You know? I mean what's what's the music that that speaks to you? I mean maybe not even concert band literature. I know I've been here before and you've played I always forget the name of this piece the one that you quizzed me on it was like an 1116 or something that pennies from heaven something he just made it I'll up find to screw it. With uh, it. no 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 I'll find, <laughs> I'll find it out i've got the emails still but i mean what's what's the music that to you just really speaks to you any specific pieces composers um artists out there well it covers quite a quite a range oh i know <laughs> would you like us to make it a broader question for you <laughs> Music. What, what do you like? <laughs> what do you like about music, Mr. Snook? Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll give you a, we'll give you an example. You know, when we talked to Greg Bim, he said there was the, the piece that he loves that he still hasn't done yet. For example, it's a, a Child's Garden of Dreams, Ms. Lanka. It was, it was just a piece. Yes, and he'll did. never get to do that with uh, with marching band, uh, concert band. He will, but not with yeah. his marching band because David won't allow any arrangements of his pieces. Well, it also said he loves Persichetti, but Persichetti, that's just something yeah. that really speaks to him. Persichetti was my first real wow. Now, I really love the way it's put together. Okay. It's very acerbic. It's very cerebral, but for me, really engaging, that I really like the way that I have to concentrate, uh, the way he handles motives and passes it, and passes them around and treats them, develops them. I find it, I find it really 
interesting. And of course, as a percussionist, his use of percussion melodically was just eye-opening to me back back in the 70s, late, or 60s, in the late 60s in particular, when I first became aware of, or acquainted with his work. Okay. Uh, when I was in college, we had been some Persichetti on campus. And so we, we did uh, several Persichetti pieces, uh, the Symphony Six and Masquerade in particular, on the same program when he was there. And so I had that additional tie-in of getting a chance to do those pieces more than once when I was in college and having Vincent Persichetti there. But yes, he's no, he is one. Uh, as a band composer, a composer of things originally for band, as a composer, uh, Shostakovich, uh, Prokofiev, both to me very, very interesting. And I find their work engaging. Uh, Prokofiev in large part because it's so quirky, where he doesn't do the expected very often. It takes you in a direction you go, oh, where did that come from? But once you're there, it's like, oh yeah, that, that works. I found the email. The Ellis album is <laughs> Tears of Joy. Yes. To the Strawberry Soup, beginning at 1736. <laughs> The tune you played as part of Bulgarian Bulge. The Colton, yes. All right, so see, I wasn't Bulgarian Steve. Bulge. I've got it right that's here. That's all you've been thinking about for the last that's minutes, right. by the way. That's right, that's <laughs> right there. It's in mix 31 and 33. Oh, that. <laughs> what about some pieces that, over the course of your career, you, you knew you wanted each new group of students to experience? Were there, were there any works that every three to five years you knew you were going to program just because they were worth working through? Uh, yes. Uh, no, and it different levels too, that for the second band, there were, there were works that had good things to work on and were good, good pedagogical tools, as well as being interesting for the performers. One that was performed at Midwest just last week is the, the Claude Smith- Emperor Overture? Emperor Overture, which, which has its challenges, but it has really, really fun things to do and, and requires kids to have independence of parts you know, and to be listeners. And of course you have that seven, eight thrown in there the little hiccup things that he put in every piece, all fun things. And that piece came up about about every four years with the top concert group, things like the Grimsky uh, Korsakov Procession of Nobles as a piece that you know, that has a great deal of audience interest, performer interest, gets you in some keys that you have to, you know, for the woodwinds, they have to learn some other things. Now, those are favorites of mine, and I did them in pieces like that, not just those two pieces, but that's several pieces that I recycled. As the students would turn over, I would then... Bring it back. Well, I'm, just, I'm just thinking back to high school. I know my freshman year we played Emperado Overture. My junior year we played Procession of Nobles. <laughs> Both really tough. Like as a freshman, Emperado Overture had a lot of challenge to it. And as a trumpet player in particular in Procession of Nobles, that was that was tough. Did he pull it off? We're not gonna we're not gonna answer oh, that question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, one of the most difficult times of year is post marching band season. And I think a, a realization that I've come to is I really like, um, I love the collaborative nature of marching band. I think that's one of the reasons I really like conducting a spring musical is that you've got all of these different elements coming together and you work on part of a team. Something that I personally find difficult is I'll have a team of maybe five to 15 other people working with me on something like marching band or the musical and then when it gets to be concert band it's now me and 65 kids in a room and that can be a real challenge so are there particular ways in which you looked for support outside of outside of your classroom mentors or colleagues that could come in and, and work with the groups ways that maybe you utilized student leadership or just for yourself combated that feeling of okay i'm alone now <laughs> <laughs> how did you handle that 
Now, I understand completely the, the feeling of difference in the teaching situation when you don't have others to engage in a dialogue with. That we, in our situation, uh, the situation that I was in and that you're in now, yeah. uh, where you are the only person in the, in the instrumental music department. Uh, if you're in a school that has multiple directors or has band and orchestra and maybe some other instrumental ensemble teachers, then you can have that dialogue. You can work together. You can play off of another person who knows what the situation is. Schools in Texas have a tremendous advantage where they have a staff in the band department, multiple directors and instrumental teachers who are part of their staff that gives you an opportunity or that give you an opportunity to to really try ideas before you're in front of kids. What do you think of? How about, or I'm having a problem with, or I don't know what to do with. It is very difficult. You know, there are you know, the friends in the activity picking up the phone. When I'd pick up and call Greg Bim, or I'd call somebody else and just you know, sometimes just to talk through an idea or a concept because of the otherwise all I have right now is what I can think of right now. And that you know, and that has its limitations at the moment. Where I'm, you know, I need a, I need a jolt to go in another direction. I need a, ooh, you know, think about this you know, to take you in that other direction. It's a, yeah, it is a challenge you know, when you go from the collaborative process to, uh, you know, to not having that additional input. It's part of where you get to be very self-reliant. However, where you have to think very carefully about what you're going to do. You're not relying on that input from others. You know, and that, you know, that process of evaluating what you know and applying the multitude of techniques that you've run across for handling a particular situation. While we're having difficulty balancing this, you know, what do I know? How can I approach that? How can I make that work? You know, they're just not getting this part where it shifts to the key of G here for this bit. You know, what can I do without taking the entire class time for the clarinets to learn to play A major scales for them? What can I do to make this work better? Well, as we're kind of getting to the end here, I mean, there's we're always trying to learn here. So, I mean, you know, just a straight to the point question: What do you see in in younger directors? Let's say I don't know, 31, 32 years old, and 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 younger, just just flat out targeting stuff, us specifically, maybe <laughs> just just flat out things that you're seeing from the outside there. You're like, guys, you got to be doing this. Like, you know, what 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 are some common flaws that you see? Uh, that can be easily fixed, and then some other things that will just work with work out with time, I guess. I really get upset when I hear people who are in that twenty-something to early thirties saying that they're burned out. Okay. You have to have a flame before you can burn out. <laughs> the smoldering doesn't count. You actually you have to actually commit totally to the success of the program, which means you commit also that you might possibly fail. You know, to not be afraid of failure. If you're not failing occasionally, that means you're not pushing yourself. You're not stretching. You're not increasing your boundaries. No, you're going to make a mistake. You're going to overextend in a place. You're going to select the piece that you wish wasn't on the concert. That's going to happen occasionally. But it's to not expect everyone to, you know, to pat you on the back and say, that was good. Because most of what we do won't be wonderful. It'll be okay, but it, it's not going to be wonderful. We have to actually be able to, to work through that to get to the point of really being concentrate, being able to concentrate on the student's success, not our success. It just really annoys the heck out of me with people. I'm, I'm, I'm just burned out. And it's like, <laughs> you've been teaching for what now? <laughs> six years? Yeah. Seven years? <laughs> You're just maybe figuring out how to do it. Uh, and it is called work. Although 
ideally we can make the situation one where we very seldom have a day of work it's getting paid to do something we would do gladly for free. It's just such a wonderful profession to be able to do that, where, where most days it's like this has been fun for all of us. Just really had a good time with the yeah. kids today. Well, I can say personally, I think one of the struggles for me when I first started teaching, and maybe this is you know part of, part of that burnout feeling, is having seen the program that I was a part of which was very successful when I was in school and wanting that right right away. You know, coming now. out of college and going, well, what do you mean we're, we're not going to sound that good and look that good right away? So beyond what you just said, do you have, you know, advice for, for those that maybe aren't in their first job? They're just going out student teaching or they're just going into that first position. Things to expect in those first few years that will help them to realize, you know, it's it's okay if your band isn't your high school band that you were a part of. You, you have to build that for yourself. Well, you have to build your abilities. You have to build your understanding. You have to build your skills at communication. What you know is only part of the formula. You have to be able to communicate that to others in a meaningful way. You have to make it where they want to learn that. That's the biggest goal is to get kids w wanting to, to, to be better musicians. It's not because we have so many golden words for them, but mm -hmm. capturing their imagination so they want to become great. One of my real joys was when I was finally allowed to have a third band, kids who really needed remedial help, and how many of those kids ended up staying in program and becoming players in the wind ensemble by the time they were juniors or seniors, where they got excited about playing and filled in the blanks that they had missed the first time around. And it's finding a way to communicate with kids so that they want to be good, want to be successful. My last question for you would be, hindsight is twenty twenty. It sounds like you don't really have a lot or any regrets about your career that you know the the missteps. Well, I mean the miss the missteps along. Well, that's a that's a statement that doesn't have any basis in fact. I mean, you're talking about missteps being important to the learning process, right? And how that's yes, that's how yes. you become a better teacher. So, I guess my question would be: Is there anything that when you were younger, if you had that, well, if I knew then what I know now, would I go back and do it differently? Or do you think that? finding your way through some of those difficult times was what made you the teacher you, you were? First of all, I definitely would have done some things differently <laughs> if I would have known then what I know now. Most definitely, I would have avoided some of those painful, painful mistakes in doing some things that I look back on now and going, no, I wish I hadn't done that. But finding one's own way is really important. Now, we are all different. We, we may all buy the same piece of music and put it out on the stands. But the kids in front of each of us is a different group. We are different individuals. We have different backgrounds. We have different sensibilities about what we want to hear and, and the way we want to approach things. And we've all heard a different orchestral versions of the same piece that sounds so very different. Well, that's because those directors are very different people. And we're each going to find our way through this differently. Now, it's a different journey. We may get to essentially the same destination, but we don't necessarily have to take the same path to get there. The road has many branches. Well, we want to thank you for, for sitting with us today. And we, we appreciate, uh, you know, my pleasure as much knowledge as we can. What's uh, so what's next for Ken Snook? Any big plans in the in the future here for you? Big plans, big plans, medium plans, big plans musically. 
got a couple of projects that I need to get back to. I haven't, I've not done much writing in several months here. I need to, I need to get myself back into being productive that way. Okay. Well, we've, we've barely talked about your compositions. Where can we find your music for purchase? <laughs> for perusal, we can, <laughs> we can go to kensnook.com, ksnook.com, or kennethsnook.com, which will all be the same site. And you can look at scores and listen to most of the middies, but sometimes recordings of, of pieces. Well, thank you very much for sitting down with us, Mr. Snook. Again, you know, being my high school band director, it, it means a lot to be able to take this time. And I know Don was really excited to talk to Mr. Liga when we did that a few weeks ago. So. And, and you. And you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's exciting for us to be able to sit down now you know, with, with those teachers that were so important to us when we were in those seats and to kind of pick your brain a little bit. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.